Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You. Yes, you. Listener. Did you know that everybody at History Hack works for free? And as much fun as that is, it would be great if we could garner just a little bit of support for all of the time and effort that goes in to producing the show. Uh, I have a cat that needs food. Zach has Airfix models to buy. And Boney, well, Boney likes books. So if you can chuck us a couple of quid as a one-off by Kofi or subscribe to Patreon, we would much appreciate it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to History Hack. I'm on duty with the boss lady today, so it's all very exciting. There has been much giggling. And uh, <laughs> who have we got with us today, Alex? Oh, we have. We have so I love this person so much. Uh, right, I generally go to the top of my list if I've drunk gin with you um, and we have <laughs> drunk gin together. Uh, so Nina Harkrida is back to talk to us more about Victorians and buildings that I could read you. We have a list of all the degrees she's had, but in her, in her own words, that just makes me sound like a pretentious wanker. Uh, so she's done. She's been to school. She's read stuff. She's well qualified. Uh, but really, she's here because she's an immense amount of fun. And she came on before to talk to us about Victorian workhouses. And what she does is look at stuff with a teaching focus on relationships between buildings, history and people during the 19th century. Uh, that's the only pretentious bit I'm going to use from that biography. Um, and we started rabbit holing on the last episode, didn't we, Nina, about social we housing? Did. We did indeed. Are you ready for this, Matt? I am. Matt, are you ready? Oh, she's going to blow you away, dude. Bring it on. I, I, I loved the last episode. So I'm, that's is kind of why I sort of stuck my name down for this one. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Uh, do you know what? I pulled rank and booted Zach off of it yesterday because he wasn't down for the one after, which is completely within his skill set. And he knows loads about. Um, and I was like, right, you could do that one. And I'm doing this one. He was like, what? <laughs> OK, <laughs> so we're going to talk about social housing, uh, which we did rabbit hole on, Matt, before. Um, but I think we're going to focus, Nina, because you've got so much to say. We're going to focus on the earlier origins of social housing aren't we yes definitely nail it properly we could we could I could wrap it on for you know everyone would go to sleep my god is that woman finished yet but I have to say it is it continues to be a topic that should be top of mind Um, you know certainly here on this side of the pond many many people are still struggling to put a roof over their heads Um, housing projects that are designed by people who do have money for people who who struggle with money continue to be built. Um, Many, many, many of them are not successful. Um, Many, many of them are too expensive for the group of people who ostensibly they should be housing. And there are disasters. Um, For example, we had a a hurricane uh, a couple of about a month and a half ago And the huge scandal was that there are a a large number of people in here in New York who are living in illegal basement dwellings with one egress because they can't afford anything else. And a number of people drowned because they're because the basements flooded and they couldn't get out. 
So, you know, this is, I know this is also happening on your side of the pond. Um, you know, I know London is, is extremely uh, challenging and difficult and so on in this respect. And so, you know, the, the thought for today is really, um, let's go back to the origins. How did we first begin to address this problem of people who could not afford to house themselves and had to make do with whatever arrangements they could? Um, so in this way, we're, we're returning back to some of the questions we, we began to address last time with workhouses, which is how did we get to the point of a housing crisis in, in, in England? Because this is a where it starts. And, um, you know, as mentioned last time, um, you've got growth in cities, you've got um, a variety of things contributing to the fact that most of the poor in England who worked on in various agrarian places and on farms, um, that life is over. Um, they come to cities in search of trying to find um, work to put food on their table. Um, they, many, many of them end up in London where land use is kind of weird <laughs> because of course the land is freehold uh, by any number of extremely wealthy people. Um, in order to build something, um, you have to become, you have to pay to use the land, uh, which is called leasehold. And then that gets passed down the chain. So typically what is happening in London um, because of the constraints on land and land use is you've got a huge influx of people um, you've got who really have almost no place to live. And so a lot of buildings which were formerly dwellings for um, the middle class, the burgeoning middle class and the well-off become subdivided into what over here we call single room occupancy. So you're letting a room or a part of a room in many cases in various uh, structures um, and you have, you know, no WC, no running water, um, and you could have several families in that same room. Um, You're paying a great deal of uh, the money that you have and it's incredibly unsatisfactory and it's dangerous um, and it's unhealthy. So by the time we get to the 1830s, um, you know, after the Napoleonic Wars, when again, many, many more people are looking for work, uh, after a series of disastrous harvests, we have the 1832 uh, cholera epidemic, 31 and 32 cholera epidemic, which is seen by, um, you know, the upper sorts as originating from the masses of poor people crowded into these structures. And they come to this conclusion because many, many poor people die of cholera. Um, And also because of the, you know, thinking at the time is miasmic theory, which is disease arises from dirt, disorder, bad smells and filth. So they make what to them is an obvious connection. Yeah, to them, it's like an obvious connection, isn't it? That poor people- Absolutely, absolutely. So, and of course there is the fear that Uh, Because, you know, not only the poor die for cholera, but uh, the upper sorts, some of the upper sorts go. Um, So there's a fear that this is going to continue. Um, So what starts to happen is uh, we, one of the things we must remember of Victorians is how much they felt the physical environment influenced one in terms of not only your actual bodily health, but your moral health. Um, you know, moral health and physical health are entwined. Um, so if you are a uh, physically dirty person, you must be a morally dirty person as well. 
Another thing to remember is that the Victorians believed very much that not just the physical environment of where you lived, the outdoors and, you know, and the streets where you lived influenced you, but also the actual buildings where you lived in could have an influence on you. So if you were in, if you lived in dirty circumstances, if your house was dirty, if your house was decrepit, if it was old, if it was broken, that would have an effect on your character. And um, so all of these different strands come together um, and a genuine concern on the part of many people um, about the state of the poor and the situations that they're in come together and become the start of really what is a housing reform movement. And it starts um, on a philanthropic basis, basically. Um, so you have people, for example, like um, the Earl of Shaftesbury, um, who, who are concerned, who have money, who um, I think also because he was on the, the, the commission that investigated uh, mining um, and uh, understood the horrific conditions uh, under which um, you know, men, women and children were mining. He seems to have a particular um, idea that this is something that has to be changed. Um, and he, uh, I think, among the groups of people who, who, who get involved, who are typically upper class, um, you know, some, some nobles, some, um, you know, newly wealthy businessmen in general, um, decide that this is something that they, they feel honor bound to tackle. Um, so basically, the, the approach is this, um, because of the idea that if you are a poor person and you are given something that you don't earn, it's going to pauperize you, right, make you dependent. And we talked about this last time with the workhouses, this whole idea that, you know, you can't get anything for free, you have to earn it, um, at that uh, immediately when they begin to think about, well, what could we do to provide housing, a big part of it is that it has to be a capitalist enterprise, that the only way that this is going to work is if it's a money-making enterprise, because that will attract investors and also that will allow them to charge generally market rate rents, but to provide better housing for what the poor are normally paying. Where, and, can I just ask, like, just yeah, even more away. basic on that, where do we get yeah. the idea and when does it start to come in mm-hmm. that you really have to do something for people that can't look after themselves and you don't just leave them to scrabble about. Right. It really is in the wake of the, the, the understating the importance of the cholera epidemic, I think is, you know, everyone understands that that's a huge moment in terms of disease fear of disease and an intervention. Like, is it not 1850 yeah. or that they work out that it's in the water supply? It, yes. Yeah. So it takes them a- another 20 years and even then don't forget that not everybody listens to snow that the powers that be are like who are you you don't know what you're talking about um but the impact of the of the first first because remember there are multiple right first cholera epidemic is is significant and uh, part of the reason it's, it's significant is the number of people part of the reason it's significant is it's happening in the wake of trying to um you know, look at dropping the poor rates, right? Um, so poor, the poor rates have been going up and up and up for all those economic and social reasons that we talked about last time. And so in some ways, the cholera epidemic seems to many people to be a big warning. You know, if you don't figure this out, if you don't figure out how to manage the growing population of poor, this is going to keep happening. 
It's a very um, British thing as well, isn't it, to yeah. fix people? Like Absolutely. we've already what? So wait, going back to sort of the seventeenth century, we we're mm-hmm. sending missionaries out and stuff to oh, yeah. improve Absolutely. people and that. Absolutely. And, and there's a whole other series of discussions, I'm sure that could be could be had on the idea of the perfectibility of human beings and that mm. the Christian duty to, you know, strive for perfection, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, that all comes into this. Um, but, but in the wake of the of the epidemic, there is a significant report conducted by um, James Phillips Kay, who is going to go on to become an assistant assistant poor law inspector he reappears he's going to reappear throughout the century in a lot of different important public roles but basically he's in charge of 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 a survey in manchester called the moral and physical condition of the working classes i'd like to point out that the moral notice moral is before physical in this in this area and it's an investigation to try to understand why there was a cholera epidemic what were the conditions that gave gave rise to this um, and it's hugely influential because, of course, what he discovers is that Manchester, which another burgeoning urban urban place, has a lot of very poor people who cannot afford good housing and there isn't good housing to begin with. And so they are, you know, they are physically dirty because they don't have access to water. It's crowded, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you, you are also, um, you know, you have any number of people from Ireland who have been starving and there are racial implications for that, et cetera, et cetera. So his conclusion is basically that these people are so dirty and so ignorant that, it, that these conditions gave rise to this epidemic. And they are, he, he doesn't say it directly, but he kind of implies that they caused it. And so that that obviously uh, strikes fear into the hearts of of many many people who who are you know employing working class people and who are trying who are you know getting rents from them and so on. And so I think all of these things come together um, at a point when and the the investigation into the mines occurs about that time. As I said, the you know the poor rates are going up, so it becomes um, incumbent to figure out. Uh, the state of the poor and the future of the nation, basically. So there's that aspect too. Just just so, on that re- that report, was, yes. It, mm-hmm. it seems that just from the title that was the preconception going in. Yes. So they absolutely. they were very much sort of uh, confirmation bias, sort of elements elements absolutely. to it. Was absolutely. was there anything that came out of it that um, you know that would have surprised their preconceptions or was it just literally this this place is hell these people can't help themselves we've got to do something for it one of the things about these surveys is that they really are they are although um they are treated as if they are statistically significant they are based on anecdotal evidence which then, um, because of you know the rise of sort of ideas about science and numbers, then get interpreted as if they are objective. And you will, you will, and again, we could do a whole other, we could do a whole other podcast on how that works. But that is basically how it happens. And so you are absolutely right. The confirmation bias is enormous. Um, and there's a terrific book by Christopher Hamlin, looking at 
um, the, uh, the, the big analysis uh, in, that was done in the 1840s, where they're looking at the physical and social condition of all the working classes in Great Britain, and how that whole thing is structured with confirmation bias. And so, of course, it's going to tell you what you're looking for, basically. And yes, that's exactly what happens. So all of these things are confirmation bias. There is no, there's no objective science in terms of this, although it's tr- treated as if it's objective science. Um, and so, yes, it, it confirms everyone's fears about the poor, everyone's concerns about disease, latent concerns about, um, you know, Great Britain's role as uh, growing role as an industrial power. And that certainly is a big chunk of this is if all of all of the people who, who we want to work for us are going to be ill, we've got ourselves a serious problem. So the condition of, of the poorer sorts is of great concern to everybody as vectors of disease, as potential disorder. Um, you know, in the 1830s, of course, we're talking about, you know, arguments for, uh, you know, voting reform, what we over here would call voting reform and so on and so forth. And this, this all becomes kind of smushed together. Mm. Um, and one of the solutions because of the ideas about miasmatic theory and because of the ideas about a bad environment influences people to become bad, this is where the housing piece starts to come in on the part of philanthropists. If we could put these folks in, in a good environment, that will, in, A, it will encourage them to stay clean, which means they won't create disease, they won't get disease, and it will influence them to be orderly and to behave themselves, not to become chartists, you know, and other things like yeah. that. So it's, it's all of kind of a giant, it, it, it's, it's, it's a big bunch of ideas kind of crashing together. Um, yeah. Take it right down, because we're looking at it sort of from above and yes, how people are. are looking down on this problem. Can we look at it from the bottom up? So at the very simplest terms, what is life like for these people and how bad are the conditions in the slums? To to the point where I'm not even sure that any of the three of us could imagine how bad it is. So Um, I mean, looking at the rookeries in London that you see in Oliver Twist, the musical, I mean, that is, that's one example, right? Yes, that's right. You know, you are, because remember there is, there's parliament and there are parishes. So there is no, there are no laws. There's nothing to compel anyone who is letting anything to another yeah. person to take care of it. There's no, um, you know, there are no sanitation laws. There, there's nothing basically. And a lot of this is- There's yeah. a book actually, that it's a little bit earlier. It's the 17th mm-hmm. century. Yeah. It's called The Thief Taker and it's a novel and it's a good novel. It's a good laugh. Yeah. Um, you should mm-hmm. read it everyone yes. because one thing that is in that is these these London slums exist already then, don't they? And these people that are living way below a poverty line of any kind. Absolutely. I mean, and there are literally areas of London you cannot walk through in the dark absolutely. because you will die. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's very, very true. And, and is, is this sort of how, partially how organically London's grown, especially after the yes. fire? Because you know, yeah, my, I mean, my dad's yeah. got a wonderful Wren pick etching yeah. of what London should have looked like. And it absolutely, yeah. It, it yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, arguably, they bulldoze a lot of the worst of it for the railways, don't they? For the cuttings, yes. um, for the railways and things. But before that, it is horrific. Right. And, and we could get into the whole idea of slum clearance as another piece, which is 
we are going to eradicate these quote fever nests, you know, these rookeries, these places. But of course, when you do that, you then take the thousands of people who live there and you've taken away the roof over their heads. However bad it is, it's still a space where someone can be inside at night. You know, it, you're, you're, not, you're not houseless. So there are a whole lot of things that, that come into play and keep kind of repeating themselves and, and in a sense getting more complicated and more challenging. So, but just to bring us back, because as I, 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 we, we, we all know there are so many big social questions here, we could never actually get to the buildings themselves. So I'm going to yeah. us, <laughs> drag us back to the buildings and talk about um, what, what were they trying to do? What were they trying to do? And so, again, you've got people like the Earl of Shaftesbury. You've got other like-minded folk who have power and or money. And they look at the situation and for any number of reasons, they decide that this is one way to go. And again, there's no authority to take care of this at all. So they decide, what if we construct something? What if we find a place for people who who are who can't don't have good living conditions and we we move them in and so to a certain extent it's a little bit of an experiment to see whether or not it will work but it's also i think a genuine desire to do it now i talked quickly about the fact that it's a profit making venture because of all those reasons about you don't give any any anyone anything for free they won't work if they don't work yada 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 they become a pauper, they end up in the workhouse, and that's not where we're going with this idea. Thank you very much. So what happens, the first problem they have is they have to come up with enough money to actually do something. And first they look into taking existing structures and kind of repurposing them. And what they discover is that that's a problem because most of the things that, first of all, there's very little that they could do by buying old houses, for example, and then repurposing them. Although that's another strand of this, uh, which if we have time, I'll rem- I will come back to later. So what they end up doing is they try to find, they, so then they say, right, this is not gonna work. We're gonna have to build something. And that of course is much more expensive. So the first thing they have to do is they have to get enough supporters to raise the capital. And that takes quite some time to do that, obviously, because this is a new thing. And I, I suspect a lot of people think they're just, you know, this is not going to work. They do. So um, they organize themselves. The first company is called the Metropolitan Association for Improving Dwellings of the Laboring Classes. Um, they actually come together in 1841. I'm just but laughing because it's so pithy. Oh God, yes, and you know, and that's, and, that's not gonna, that's not going to work on Twitter, is it? it no, yes. I'm afraid not. And, you know, and and another organization, a like-minded organization. This is one that the Earl of Shaftesbury is involved with, is the Society for Improving the Condition of the Laboring Classes. But what that does is it tells you what they're trying to do. You know, and and they are again. We can we can sort of look back and you know facepalm, but this is in fact it's a thing, and they are genuinely trying to help at a time when no one else is. So. The Metropolitan Association, they have to raise all of this money. They finally get enough people and enough capital so that they can, they can locate a piece of land that they're actually allowed to lease. So remember, because of freeholding and leaseholding, it's, it's more complicated and they have to get agreement and there's a whole bunch of legal things they have to go through. So finally, between 1846 and 1848, they've come up with the money, they're able to pay for construction, they hire an architect, uh, Moffitt, 
who um, just as an aside was a what is a former partner of um, uh, G.G. Scott and their early work together was all workhouses. So, uh, you know, there is, uh, there, there is, it is a thing. The plot of land is actually not that far from the St. Pancras workhouse. And some of that may be because it's not considered, it, it, they, they bill it as salubrious land. In other words, it's a healthy location. It's got good air. It's, you know, not hemmed in by lots of other things. Because again, the idea here is make these people healthy, put them in a healthy circumstances. So what Moffat does is he designs um, he designs a five-story building, which is a U-shape, which has different units of rooms for different families. Now, this is a totally new thing. This is not, no one in England has ever done this before. Um, so it's a totally new building form. There's lots of discussion as to where he gets the idea from. Um, obviously, workhouses are sometimes multi-story structures. Um, and people are housed in different rooms. Um, the Scottish have done this for a long time. If you look at, at Scottish urban architecture, there have always been, um, you know, essentially flatted accommodation in multi-story stone buildings. So it's possible that there are some ideas from there. Whatever, whatever the reason, it's, it's a new building type. Um, and the idea is that you give, um, you give each family and the individual family unit, we'll get onto that later, gets either three rooms and a scullery or two rooms in a scullery. Um, the way that it works is um, they, they open off of uh, central staircases in each section of the building. So as you go up a floor, um, you, will, you, you get onto different flats and so on. Um, and apparently each family actually has its own WC, however crude that might be in the 1840s. So this, this, is, this is all really new and different because, you know, again, part of the issue of living in a house that's been repurposed is you don't have access to water, you don't have a WC, and you certainly don't have a scullery, and those are not sanitary conditions. Um, the building ends up housing roughly 555 people, um, most of which are, are children, not surprisingly. Um, and there's some really interesting things that go on here. Um, they, there's not a whole lot about how they found their tenants. They put ads out and so on, but there's, there's not a lot in the surviving minutes or in surviving publications about how they found these folks. Um, but what's interesting about this building is they, uh, there actually is a journalist who goes and talks to different residents a couple of years later. Most of the people he talks to are women, not surprisingly. Um, and a number of them, and I read some of this, a number of them are really quite happy with the accommodations. Um, they feel that it's, it's cl much cleaner than they would have had. They like the fact that every family has its own WC. Um, they like the fact that each family has its own set of rooms. You know, they're not sharing rooms with other families or other people. And so it seems to be a bit of a success as far as the tenants are concerned. And that, of course, is really hard to find with any of these buildings. Um, so the, this uh, metropolitan dwelling survives until it's bombed um, during uh, World War II. It takes a direct hit. I think it's one of the, I think it's the um, 1940, the big raid in 1940, where, um, you know, where, because uh, the, the Pancras, uh, the St. Pancras workhouse also took a direct hit at the time. And it really, it, it kills a number of people who live in the building. And after, afterwards, they decide to take it down. But I think it's fascinating that it stays in use for nearly 100 years. 
um, there are changes made to make it more accommodating for people as, as the building ages. But it seems to, in general, be rather successful as a building type. Now, there is one that survives. Um, this is the Earl of Shaftesbury's, um, cons- uh, his project. And this one is over on Streatham Street. So if you actually wander over to Streatham Street, um, you'll see on the front, it still says model dwellings for families. It's kind of hard to see it because while this other one I'm describing was a U-shape with a courtyard. So you could see the building all the time. This mm. one is kind of an enclosed block and there's only one small entrance. And so what happens is you go through and on the ground floor were the, uh, were the keeper's rooms. So he could see who's coming in and out at any given time. On the inside, there are galleries. So the way it works is the outside is all wool. The inside are galleries on each floor. There are staircases and each entrance to each unit comes off of the gallery. So you don't have, A, you don't have internal corridors, which allows you to have more um, more flats uh and uh the model for council housing going all the way through to the 60s isn't it yeah and this is why we're talking about this because i think a lot of people seem to think that council housing starts you know is modeled entirely on modernist projects of the 1930s and it's actually a hundred years earlier really this is where i think we had this conversation in this segment last time people go back and watch the first series um first couple of series of call the midwife where everyone yes, in East London exactly. is still living and what are by that point slums, but yes. they are Victorian social housing. Correct, correct. So, so this is an interesting model for a couple of reasons. One is you do get more light and air, right? Because your unit is going to open out to the outside, right? So this is hugely important. Light, ventilation, get rid of miasmas. Um, you each family has its again its own scullery, um, its own sort of set of interior apartments. But then there are some funny things that start happening. One funny thing that starts happening is that these have separate bedrooms for everybody. So even though the argument is you should have a certain amount of square footage for each person, right? Because the idea is everybody needs air, something we're talking about now, coincidentally enough, ventilation. Everyone needs a certain amount of air. So you calculate the space based on how much air, how much square footage and so on. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In these buildings, though, they they break that rule because they divide up what should be a single bedroom into a smaller bedroom for boys and girls. 
which is quite interesting. So, and a separate bedroom for parents. If you look at the plans also, what you see is that the plans are very specifically labeled. So in other words, you have bedroom, 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 and then parlor, and then scullery. So there's a conscious design in these to create spaces that you would expect the middle classes to have. Well, this is like a level of privacy and personal space that this class of people is just, it's alien to them, isn't it? They're used to sharing like five to a bed. Sure, absolutely. And and this is why making these two tiny bedrooms is really quite interesting because what's happening here is we are now using the building not only to to remove people from the bad environment on the outside. This is a very inward facing building, right? You know, one entrance and on the outside, it's all very mural. There are windows to let light in, but it's clearly focused on the interior, okay? So you've got that, you've got these, these floor plans, which are very specifically designed. You can see this in the text about it. They're designed by Henry Roberts and he puts out any number of publications about what is the point of these buildings, why everyone should build them, et cetera. And while on the one hand, it's a promotional piece, clearly, for his services, because he casts himself as the expert, when you read between the lines, what you see are all of the sort of middle class and upper and you know upper middle class concerns about how the poor are behaving in their own spaces. And there's very clearly an attempt to create it as if it's a middle-class dwelling, which I think is fascinating. The other thing about these is with all of those galleries is you can see who's coming and going from anyone's flat at any given time. So you have what, what some people like to call spectrality, right? You can I find see it interesting, that. this idea of a keeper, though, that these are a um, class of people right. that need, uh, for all of the good work they're doing, yep. somebody needs to keep an eye on them because they can't be trusted. Absolutely. And as time goes on during the 19th century, what you find is that initially, yes, the buildings have rules and there are, you know, there are rules, you know, children, there are complaints, you know, children are running up and down the staircases, you know, they shouldn't be doing that, that sort of thing, right? But as the century goes on, um, and, you know, into the 1860s, I think the Peabody dwellings, which a lot of people do know about, the Peabody dwellings are very rigid indeed. Um, By the time you get to the Peabody dwellings in the 1860s, um, you have to now fill out an application to be a resident. You have to tell them for whom you're working, how much you get paid, how many children you have and what their ages and sexes are. And I love this one, your vaccination status. Because remember remember by this time, right, we've also had, you know, there are continued concerns about smallpox. And, you know, again, we still are not really understanding about the causes of diseases, but we do know that if you're inoculated against smallpox, it seems to help. I'm just like, no social housing for Djokovic. Bye-bye. Seriously. No, I know. I mean, it is, it is, you know, again, this is one of the reasons why it's, why it's incredibly relevant is vaccination. And you have to have a letter from your employer attesting to your good character and confirming your wages. So you're beginning to have more um, gates, if you will, or more, you know, more hurdles to jump before you can actually. It's just because be- of a high demand. No, it doesn't seem to be because of the hiring. Really? Because they still sometimes have trouble letting these and filling them. It seems to be, uh, seems to be 
by the 1860s, there seems to be this belief that, hang on, we're doing all these things for the poor and our poor rates are still going up. There are plenty of paupers and all of these poor people and why aren't they working? So there's a gigantic disconnect between an understanding of how the labor market actually works, what you pay people and um, how the poor are, you know, why the poor are still poor. Didn't we um, say this in the a, last episode with workhouses that this became yes, a we problem? Did. We did. We did indeed. And so um, so it is, you begin to see this in the housing. So by this period, you know, again, the Peabody Trust is kind of the sine qua non of, of you are going to follow our rules. God help you. If you're drunk, they put you, you're out instantly. There's no warning. You're gone. Uh, um, let me guess, loose women get it in the neck. Oh, well, loose women are not going to actually get in there in the first place. But the yeah. other thing is, whereas in the metropolitan dwellings, you could you could have your walls papered, you could create the space a little bit as a homely space for yourself. And this is, again, one of the things that the female residents comment on, is they like that. They like to be able to do that. In the Peabody dwellings, you can't do that. You have to, um, uh, what we call whitewash, what you'd call lime wash the inside of your flat uh, once a year. You're not allowed to put wallpaper up. You can't put any nails in the wall. So no pictures, obviously. Um, and you have all these other behavioral constraints. You have to pay your, your rent in advance. You're not allowed to sublet. Um, if, you, if one goes through all of the different volumes of minutes and so on, and also the volumes of tenants, you see tenants getting evicted because what they've done is they've brought other extended family members into the flat to live and you're not allowed to do that so it's it becomes much more restrictive the other thing about the peabody dwellings is that they get away from ostensibly because they want to order they want to to provide lower rents because one of the one of the concerns about the early 1840s and 50s model dwellings is people who really need them can't afford them yeah, I think, uh, Matt, do you want to segue us onto a question about yeah. that? Because I know you've got a question, haven't you, about yeah. how people pay for this and how realistic it is that they can. Yeah, yeah it, it, you, you've got those those two elements of it. You've got one, once you're in, you're being yes, sort of shoe, shoe, shoehorned into a certain level or an, accept, an acceptable level of morality that as is perceived correct. by somebody else. Yes. But then to get in, you've got to have some cash. So... Mm-hmm how much cash are we talking about here and can people actually afford this but from what you're saying it's it's a, it's an upper strata of the lower yes. class yes it is and it's actually can be really hard to figure out what they were charging because of the survival of documents basically um peabody trust um rent books and so on are around but they tend to be from the later years so that's really frustrating. So sometimes it's really hard to get at what exactly people have to pay. And it changes depending upon how big your accommodation is. Um, one way to understand who was living in the Peabody dwellings is actually to look at some of the, there, there's a terrific article, um, well, not in itself, it's terrific as in it's terrifically useful, survey done in the 1890s of the residents of Peabody dwellings. And you don't get so much a discussion about what the rents are, but what you do find is what their occupations are. So that's helpful. And what you see is there are any number of charwomen, and we know those women are paid so little, right? But you also have police constables, and you have teachers, and you have 
French polishers and you have people whose wages, you know, they're higher up in the hierarchy of working class jobs. You have nurses, for example. Oh, it's so annoying that you just, you still, yeah. you go back and there are the people that society needs getting paid not enough to survive. It's not a new Absolutely. Thing. And this is, you know, and, and we'll, we'll, we, we can come back to that. We can come back to that later on as to when a, a reckoning of what's actually going on starts to occur. Um, Peabody's not the only place though. I mean, they're notorious for, you know, for a particular type of architecture, a, a particular, and, and the, the surviving estate in Islington actually from 1865 is a really good example. That's one of the early ones. And if you wander over there, what you see are five-story individual block buildings organized around an open space and with a fence, an iron fence around it. So again, the idea is you can't get in here and, unless you're a resident. Um, crossing in and out of the buildings, we can, you know, we can see you because there's always a caretaker there, right? At least one, sometimes several, and a rent collector. Um, and uh, there, there are no frills, as we know, in a Peabody dwelling. You know, no, there was never really a plan for, it, 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 in my recall, and it, I can be wrong. I, I could be wrong. There may be one or two where there is some work on the grounds. But in general, they are, you know, they're tarmacked. And the other thing is you're not supposed to play in the courtyard. <laughs> That's the other thing. So th there's all sorts of things going on here. You know, you want your children within the space. But even today, if you wander around and you look at Peabody dwellings, you'll see the old painted signs that say things like, you know, no ball playing, right? No, you know, you're, you're not meant to, you, you have to behave a certain way. The other thing about the Peabody dwellings is that they are, they offer a, a lower level, if you will, of comfort. They are built on what's called the associated plan. And so what that means is you've got a room or two rooms for your family, but you don't have your own WC. You don't have your own, uh, you know, sort of place to wash. Those are grouped at each end of a cord, an interior corridor. Yeah. So it's more efficient from a building standpoint, we can get more people, we can offer theoretically, we can offer accommodation to more people, right? On the same lot, because it's again, it's expensive. The land is always expensive to get to use. So the upside is we can build more buildings and offer accommodation to more people. The downside is we're gonna strictly regulate who you are, what you can do. Um, we're going to bounce you out if you don't behave yourselves. Oh, and by the way, you know, you're going to have to go and, you know, and, and, and wash up in, you know, kind of like a public space. Um, and, you know, again, those private functions of being clean and of, of and, and um, things like that are now public again. You know, so if we're putting an emphasis on domesticity and trying to behave like middle class people, at the same time, by the 1860s, we're saying, yeah, well, we want you to do that, but we also want to keep an eye on you, you know? And so we're, we're going to keep an eye on you when you've got access to water. We're going to keep half an eye on you when you have access to the WC, you know? And they put these things in the ends of the buildings, partly for sanitary reasons, right? You don't put them in the middle of the block, but also because we can sort of see you, you know, we can kind of have half an eye on what you're doing and what you find by end of the century um, in a particular group uh, constructed by the East End Dwelling Company who are 
as, as it says, begin by building things in the East End of London for the very poorest of the poor, again, with the idea of, you know, carmen and dock workers and so on can't afford, you know, they can't afford these other philanthropic dwellings. They can't afford these other model dwellings. So we're going to build things that are even sort of, you know, we're going to put them where these people are. We're going to, and, and we're going to make them even less expensive. By the 1890s, um, they tackle a section of St. Pancras, which has historically been a fairly egregious slum. They knock things down and they build um, a complex called the Cromer Street Estate. And you can still, again, it's still there. You can walk by it and people are still living there. And they take kind of, they, they sort of do a riff on um, what was done in the 1840s in that they're uh, sort of like um, model dwellings for families in that there are entrances, there are more entrances because the buildings are bigger. But you come in the entrance, it's essentially very mural on the outside. And on the inside, you have galleries again. So we've gone back to this type of model, which gives you light and air. You have a slightly larger core, but it's increased the spectrality even more. And here again, we go back to most of these have, um, you know, you don't necessarily have your own water closet. They group them at the end. And what's really interesting is that if you, if you stand in the courtyard, if you were to stand in the courtyard in these buildings uh, when they were first constructed and look around, not only can you see everybody's doorway, but you can also see the sort of open entrances to where the sinks are at the end of each floor. You can't see into the WCs, but you know where they are. So if you're the caretaker, you can actually keep an eye on everyone from various points in the courtyard. Um, now, this is at a time, again, where we're giving more and more rights to various layers of the working classes, right? By the 1890s, we've had the Education Act. We've had an expansion of uh, male suffrage. We've got a bunch of different things at the parliamentary level, which are enabling um, greater rights to portions of the working classes. And yet our, these model dwellings are now even more controlling and more sort of, um, you know, you're more visible and your behavior counts more than it did early on. So I think there's a really interesting thing going on here in terms of how these buildings are meant to manage, teach, influence, and to a certain extent, the ideas that will control the working classes. Um, now there's, the, yeah, go, fire away. No, go ahead. You, 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 you're mentioning the, the, the sort of changes in the legislation that's coming out. Of course, the big one's the, the Working Classes Act, 1885. Right, that's correct. What does that actually change? Does that change design, philosophy? What does it, or does it not do anything? Ooh, there we go. That's one of the things about all this legislation, and I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV. So I'm pretty sure <laughs> someone, someone out there is going, to, is going to tell me that I've got this wrong. And, and, and fair play to them if, if I don't understand it. My understanding is that all of this legislation is essentially enabling. So in other words, um, until this point, you know, you, you do begin to get those, you begin to get the early layers of what we call municipal government, right? Um, the LCC is not yet in existence. So this is before the LCC, right? Um, London County Council. 
um, most government is still on a parish basis. And so most of this legislation is essentially enabling. So it gives you as a parish the, the legal right to do things. In other words, earlier legislation gave the parish the legal right to hire a medical inspector, for example, and to go and inspect dwellings and determine whether or not they were salubrious. But she didn't have to. Um, earlier legislation allows you to, uh, and here I'm thinking about workhouses, earlier legislation allowed parishes to use a portion of the poor rates to build infirmaries for workhouses on the rates if they met with certain specifications, but you didn't have to. And that's my understanding of this legislation. It comes out of a gigantic study once again, by the 1880s, when there are more economic crises, um, and we still, the, the sense is, okay, hang on, I thought we solved this. Why are these people out of work? Why are there more and more people in the workhouse? Um, you know, darn it, why are the poor still here? We thought we fixed this. There was a belief that if- There's something fun about the arrogant uh, Victorians and their, yeah. their response when they- they can't oh, yeah. figure out why their genius isn't working. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? But, but this is what you get during this period. You're also in the aftermath of a real rethink in the 1870s about the poor. And somewhere along the line, the fact that there are gigantic economic crises in England as a result of no availability of cotton during the American Civil War seems to go over people's heads. You know, in the North, where people are working, they sort of get it. We don't have cotton. We have all of these people and they're out of work. Down in London, they're like, we don't understand why all these people are coming to London. Why aren't they working where you are? You know? Yeah. You know, it, 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 yeah. Now, of course, hindsight being 2020, we can look back and say, what the, you know, what, what is wrong with you people? Um, but there is a gigantic, there is a philosophical shift in the 1870s and laws with regard to paupers become much stricter. And the knock-on effect also affects the the good poor in terms of in terms of their behavior and so on and so forth um, and there is this odd belief that this problem should be solved you know England now is is at the very top of the industrialized world it's powerful it's got an empire you know and hang on why isn't this working so, so the legislation, just to return to your question, as I understand it, is essentially enabling. So it allows you to do certain things. And I think, again, what it allows you to do is to use money in a certain way. But it doesn't, um, in other words, you can, you can get funding if you want to actually build dwellings for the working classes. But you have to meet all of these constraints. Um, and it doesn't really have much of an impact. It just doesn't. You know, people do not rush into this as, as a market, as a market opportunity. Um, they don't, because quite frankly, you can still make a lot of money letting nasty buildings that exist to, to poor people. And, you know, the amount of capital that it takes to construct new things, to do the slum clearance, right, first of all, or to find a, a piece of land where the actual freeholder is going to let you construct something. Um, and then to go ahead and do it is, is enormous. And so there isn't this big boom 
in the 1880s. It really doesn't happen until the London County Council comes into effect. And then there's a whole huge bunch of arguments about what are you going to do, you know, as a council? Do you actually sponsor housing or not? Um, you know, and I think once the government finally does become involved, then it does shift and it changes. And that's sort of a different category of housing. Once you're actually building it using taxpayer money, then that's, that's a whole other area. And people have studied that, um, you know, but, but what's, what, what I think is, is troubling is, is the, the, the way these buildings change to greater influence or at least theoretically influence the character of the people living there. The fact that the ones that are built never really house the truly needy, the fact that there is a heavy moral component. So you have to hit all these marks before you're even allowed to live here. Um, and the fact that there is no recognition of what is happening in the real world to people, that it is still, it's a moral failing if you can't support your family. Um, you know, and and it's not until 1901 with the the great investigation up in York uh, by Sebum Roundtree um, called Poverty that he begins to he actually sit, concludes in that um, now with with a modicum of you know yes there are poor people who drink too much and some of them are thriftless and it's their own fault but he actually concludes that in general people are poor because they don't get paid enough mm. but it takes until 1901. And it happens up in York and it's because Roundtree is from a family of Quakers and it's a whole other different kind of philosophical thing going up there. Um, you know, but that doesn't get traction somehow. Probably because they can't make that connection. Well, I think if they, they can more, it would they would live better. Sure. But but you could you could argue that about social problems today, right? I mean, nobody really wants to do the hard work that's necessary to give people who are in professions that just don't pay them enough a break. We still believe, and it's in the headlines everywhere. You know, I watch the Republicans in this country and the Tories over, you know, over in Britain mm. who, who are talking about, you know, the character, right? The, the character of working people. people it's like who, whether you deserve it or not. Whether you yeah, whether, right. It. You have to deserve it, right? You have to earn it, you know? And that still very much informs what we're doing now. It informs the way we build buildings, right? We build these multi-story flatted buildings. They're not furnished to a high standard. It's bare bones. We don't put the money in to maintain them. Now, that was something that the Victorians did with the early ones. They were good about that because from their perspective, it was an investment because it had to have a return, remember? And so it was worth it for them to take care of these buildings and to try to look after the tenants um, because otherwise they couldn't pay the shareholders. Um, and so that was part of a motivation. But, you know, we, we are we keep repeating these things. We don't provide, you know, the rents are still often too high for people. Right. We bust people the minute that they step out of line, you know, instead of trying to address what might be happening to them. Right. Do they lose their job? Did you know, are they in a relationship that's, that's, you know, that's dangerous and so on. The big um, one we get here is, well, they live in these council places, but they've all got widescreen TVs. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, of course, of course. And, you know, and, and that, that in a sense of um, why are we still wrestling with the same issues of poverty? I mean, that goes on for, you know, I don't, I mean, 
you know, it, it, theoretically, if, if one if one is a is a Bible reader, you know, uh, to, you know, it's attributed to to uh, Jesus that you know the poor are always with us. I mean, this is you know this isn't going to go away. Um, but the you know the question is what if housing is a is a factor for people, and it certainly is. It's the most important thing. It's the most important buildings really are housing, aren't they? Because we all need it. We all and and we all need to be in conditions where we're healthy and we're safe. You know, and the Victorians were onto that. They were onto the fact that if you provide, if you can provide a nice space for people, they will do better than if they don't have it, no question. And there was a certain moral obligation on their part. Uh, but, you know, again, it was a profit-making enterprise and, and there were, you know, and some of them worked out really well and some of them didn't. Um, you know, the issue with, with model dwellings is, the market-driven economy never wanted to invest in them because you didn't make a lot of money. You know, you might make 4% if you were lucky and you were super careful and you controlled the quality of tenant. But they never caught on as a, as kind of a, a real estate strategy. Um, despite it's, it's, the fact- it's, it's, it's the model yeah. in the market forces, not not being yes. anywhere anywhere near the same place, which absolutely, as we were saying before we started, it's, yeah. it's the same now that they can't they can't absolutely. mesh those two things. I'm going to have to stop you, and I don't want to. And I can see our <laughs> next guests are, are, are waiting patiently. I was going to say but, yes. <laughs> waiting, but that, I'm here really. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's this. I, I've sat here transfixed because that's been absolutely fascinating. Oh, and thank you. Thank you're, you. you're you're totally coming back. Yeah, that's, that's oh, again, again, yeah, again, again. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's ha- it's happening. It's happening. It should be dull, right? Yeah, let's do an hour long talk about Victorian social I'm housing. Right. And you're right. like, oh, like, I was just thinking that be. And then she. I, I did two years of social and economic history at GCSE, and I wanted to kill myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it can be just. It can be. Oh dear God, shoot me now. Well, I'll leave you. I'll leave you with a teaser then, because as they used to say on late night commercials here in the United States, but wait, there is more. And the more is the more is there is a subgroup of this housing, which is devoted to single working women. Well, this is what we didn't have time to get to today. And we're going to talk about this because surely women are supposed to stay in the kitchen and do their job, right? Oh, so much fun on this one. So um, we'll, we, we can, we, I, I, you know, I mean, I can bore for England, as a friend yeah. said. So um, I'd be delighted to come Zach back. already sitting here. So Zach, get it on the schedule. Good. I will do that. I will do and, that. Well, it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure here on History Hack. And I'm delighted to come back and on. Can't wait to see you all again. Excellent. And get over here so we can drink gin. But Nina, write this book as well because we want to read it. Yes, ma'am. That is, it's top of my list. And so now I have, now that I've outed myself and said that I'm working on it, now I have no choice. (laughs) There will be no gin till it's done. Uh Uh-oh. All right. Well, that, if nothing else motivates me, that will certainly do it. And I'll be back. I should be back this summer, but more on that anon. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, The 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. 
You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.